You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 58th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today, I have a special guest, Buddy Thornton, who's going to be talking with us about choice dynamics and diversity. Buddy, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always an honor to be asked to uh, speak and uh, anything that's going to be socially relevant. I'd love to dive right in. All right. Excellent. I know prior to this podcast, we had some correspondence about bias. And I also know that you do diversity training. So when you are training groups on biases, how do you approach subconscious, implicit, and explicit bias as it relates to social equity issues? Well, the first thing you have to do when you're looking at biases, you have to first make sure that people have a firm understanding of what each bias is. And a lot of modern training really focuses on implicit and explicit bias. And they leave subconscious bias either as a subset of implicit bias, or they don't mention it, or if they do mention it, they gloss it over. And one of the foundations of all of the bias is subconscious bias. When we're in the womb, as an example, the best example I usually get people really anchor on is about the six months of gestation, the fetus starts embedding the taste preferences of the mother. So when children are born into this world, they already are pre-biased toward the cultural taste of the food that gets uh, served or eaten in their own cultural environment. It's not a learning curve. It's a bias curve. A lot of people think, well, that's kind of weird. And I'm like, no, their body has to process all the same food that the mother does, although it's getting it, you know, in a trickle down manner, but they do automatically identify with that taste preference. It doesn't necessarily have to be a preference, but they do they're aware of that taste bias. It's a subconscious thing. They would never think about it unless someone pointed it out to them. But that feeds into what is normally talked about, which is implicit and explicit bias. Implicit bias is something that you gain within the first 12 to 24 months of age, which is also the same time where you acquire your infant attachment style. And your biases are predicated by the behaviors and the mannerisms of the people who are your caregivers. And you adopt most of the things, mannerisms and things that they see and say and do. And your brain, because it's creating neurons, it's doing all kinds of weird things to make you develop as fast as possible. It acquires all of that. You're not ever going to be aware of it. So that's why they call it implicit bias. It's embedded, it's ingrained, and you have no control over it. Once people get a handle of subconscious and implicit bias and how they work together, they it's a very tight entanglement. Then we get to explicit bias. And when I start talking about explicit bias, I start talking about the combination of the bias and the choices we make, the choices that our caregivers put us in front of. You're going through your early childhood, you start your school environment, you're surrounded by other people, you start to socially interact, and you start making choices. And as you make those choices, something's going to happen to you here, something's going to happen to you there. And we'll go back to the food example. Maybe you like something really well, but you eat it and at the same time, maybe you have a little bit of a bug going on, a virus or whatever. And so it makes you sick. Now, all of a sudden, your implicit bias that you acquire through getting sick because of that food, your subconscious is going to say, wow, better not do that again because that made me sick. 
But now you're going to think about that. Is it, did that really make me sick or was it something else? Is that So now it becomes an explicit choice. People say explicit bias. What they're really saying is I've considered all of the things in my environment and I've made a specific choice that this is going to be a bias. Now, let's take that to the social equity realm. You're young, you're surrounded by people who have a certain viewpoint of other people, say minorities, and you're in the majority, and you are going to attach yourself to certain biases. Unless you're presented with an environment or a caregiver who exposes you to positive social interaction, allows you to bypass or not embed those biases. So the bias tree is really a combination of both genetic design, opportunity, environment, and the choices you make as you start to socially interact with other people. That's fascinating. I never knew about the taste preferences. That's new information for me. That's really fascinating. I have a question for you, though. I know that I developed a bias against people in the military. I had no idea that I had this bias until I was asked to speak to a military audience. I've done the work since then to get through that and over that. I no longer have it. But I'm curious whether that was subconscious or implicit, or is there another possible category with lack of exposure? I never knew anyone in the military personally, and the only experience I'd had was what I saw in the news when I was a young child and Vietnam was happening, and we heard all those returning soldiers being called baby killers and getting spit on, and I was probably seven to nine at that time and too young to really know how to incorporate that. What kind of bias would you call that? Well, it wouldn't be a subconscious bias because you wouldn't have been able to absorb any type of external bombardment of your senses, but it does connect to your implicit biases. And here's the reason why. You were very young, let's say five, six, seven years old. So A, you're still producing neurons at an incredible rate and you're going to absorb anything that happens in your environment. Now, I happen to be a Vietnam vet, so I know exactly what you're talking about. When people talk about the Vietnam War as an example, a very good example is you rarely hear the good about the Vietnam War. You almost always hear the bad. Right. I got a chance to go to Vietnam in 2017 and interact with the grandchildren of people who were in that war. And they all said the same thing, that that was my grandparents' war. And they call it the American War. We call it the Vietnam War. They call it their civil war. They look at us as a third party not as a either an antagonist or a protagonist. They see us differently. So when you start looking at that, it becomes an implicit bias. You were bombarded between the ages of five and say nine or 10 with a constant stream of negative information about the Vietnam War. And by extension, your brain connected that to all our service people. And so it creates this negative connotation. Now, you've been able to work through that. So what you've done is you've taken the implicit bias and you've moved it into the explicit bias category and you've played with it and you've determined, hey, it's wrong for me to isolate this as a generic whole. We did some bad things in Vietnam. Some of the players did some bad things and we know that. But overall, when you take the million and a half, two million people who traversed through Vietnam over the 15, 16 years of the war, how many of them were bad actors? And you can consciously pick that out and say, well, you know, there couldn't have been that many bad actors. There may have been a few. By and large, the majority were good actors. So you can do that in your explicit bias. You can take it out, play with it, and you can make a conscious decision to set it aside. 
So it became into being as an implicit bias and you felt it, it reached into you, but because of your experience and your knowledge, you were able to shift it to the explicit side and then basically break it into its components and say, that isn't right. And so you put it to bed, you removed it. Biases can be removed, but you have to consciously work to do it. Yeah, it's true. I remember that my bias actually was that all, when anytime you start any sentence with all, all military people are control freaks. That was my belief. And watch any movie of any army recruiter, and you can believe that they're all control freaks. And then what happened was my son joined the army and my son's not a control freak. And he had friends that I met that aren't control freaks. I started to work for the yellow ribbon program and speak to audiences of military people and they weren't control freaks. So it was a true blessing to be able to step outside of my comfort zone and have real personal experiences with members of that group that I had a stereotype or bias about and learn that it really wasn't true. That was really helpful to me. One of the ways I break down that bias is I really work on trying to isolate down to a diet. I try to get someone who has a very strong bias involved or entangled with someone who is exactly what they're biased against. But I try to personalize it into a very, very small diet and say, okay, you both put your pants on one leg at a time. You both eat food. You're both human. You both uh, interact with your family the same way. There are so many similarities Humans are genetically 96% the exact same across the board. So 4% of our genetics is what separates us, no matter how you view the separation. So if you can get people on the dyadic level and you can get them to work through their biases by understanding that this is another human being who's just like you, the happenstance of where they were born, when they were born, who their parents were, what their socioeconomic status was, where they've been in the world is completely out of their control up to a point. So we can put those biases to bed really quickly, but we have to be able to get people to agree that they can approach it from that standpoint. I just want to mention, I had another beautiful experience, not about the military, but I was teaching a choice theory training once and there were only three people. One was a Jewish rabbi from Austria. One was a medical doctor from Iran. And another was a black female social worker from the South suburbs of Chicago. And what was most fascinating was the close bond that the three of them were able to form. And the two men, the rabbi and the Iranian, said that they had been trained from birth to hate each other, even though they don't know each other. And they were absolutely dumbfounded at finding the humanity of the other. Because when you're villainizing a group of people, What you said, we have so many commonalities, our genetics are the same, we put one leg in our pants first and then the other, we do things so much alike and there's so much that connects us rather than divides us, but we never find out the connections because we're separating and distancing from a group of people that we've decided doesn't have value for us. Right. The value proposition can be tricky, but I was in this very similar situation. I had a supervisor contact me and he had two people working in the same department. They were both engineers, highly educated. One was from Pakistan and one was from Northern India. And of course, these are millennia long enemies. Their entire history from the time they're little on, they deal with hatred of each other. And yet within one 60 minute session and then a 30 minute session with each one of them individually, I was able to break them down to where a six-month return visit 
the supervisor said not only were they working very well together, but they were basically inseparable. They would go to lunch together. They would do all kinds of things together. And so you can take people who are traditional hereditary enemies and you can turn them into a very strong dyad if you just get them to understand it's about the relationship, not about the history. Amen to that. So when you approach the artifacts of attachment style in your parents' coaching, because I know you do diversity training and you do parent coaching, how critical is the development of coping mechanisms for bias? Most coping mechanisms can be taken directly back to an attachment style. There's really the strongest attachment style is a secure base style. We label that as an optimal style. And when someone has a secure base mentality, that also means that they are always have a very strong curiosity. They are always sticking their nose into different things. They want to know things, even when something is bothering them, something's kind of egging at them, their cognitive bias, they are so curious that they overcome it because they are so eager to learn. They're so eager to absorb. So what you need to do is you need to A, you need to isolate the parenting style and how the development is working with the biases that are emerging. They work in tandem. It's very rare for a secure-based child to have an extreme or hard bias, whereas uh, someone who is, say, an ambivalent style of attachment, they are going to develop biases because they don't have the innate curiosity to really dive into something. So things become what we like to call a binary choice. Do I like this or do I not like this? And once they've made the choice, because they're ambivalent about what effects it's going to have and, and the other aspects of what it does to their social life, they put it to bed. I don't like it. I'm not going to like it. And therefore, it's that's I'm going to anchor on that. And so you really have to understand the artifacts of the, of the attachment style drive whether a bias is anchored or if it's loose. If it's kind of tumbling around, it's easy for a coach to get rid of it. It's easy for a coach to work with it. It's so important to know, especially if someone has an, an ambivalent attachment style, if you know that going in, you can prepare for a, a little bit of resistance, a little bit of a fight on getting rid of negative biases. So how do you know what attachment style a person has? Is there an assessment? There are assessments available, and sometimes I'll use an assessment. Sometimes I'll just do it during an intake. I'll talk to someone for 15 or 20 minutes. And I'll ask them some very, very pointed questions about what their preferences are, what they like to do, how their education has gone, how they interact with people in different social situations. And there's a couple of things that emerge. One is what I like to call the affirmation chase. When someone has an ambivalent or an unsecured attachment style, they're going to seek affirmation all the time. They are not secure in their decision making. It's a lot, it attaches to choice theory. Well, again, you can roll back into choice theory. If they can't make a choice or the choice is anchored on a very strong binary, yes or no, there's no gray area in the middle, then you already know that they don't have a secure base attachment style because secure base attachment people rarely anchor on a, a binary. They're usually very, very omnidirectional. They're willing to consider other people's opinions. So you can usually ferret that out in about a 15 to 30 minute intake session. And then you can move forward from there. When people are always seeking an affirmation or approval, you know for a fact that they don't have a secure base. Interesting. So, buddy, how critical is coaching to optimizing the relationship domain? You know, if you'd asked me that question back in the 60s and 70s, I would have said uh, it's not that important. 
but we didn't have some of the technological marvels that we have today. We didn't have social media. We didn't have computers. We had to trudge our tails down to the drugstore and have a soda and talk and maybe go on a date, go see a movie or something. We had social skills that we had to really, really engage ourselves in. I spent a lot of time in front of a mirror. Uh, I spent eight years in speech and drama. And all of that was predicated on, you know what, I need to be able to present myself a certain way to the world. Now you fast forward to today, and about 70 to 80% of the interaction people have is all on social media, it's all on digital devices. Usually what happens is, because today's group that are really learning how to get into relationships, they've lost the ability to read nonverbals. They don't pick up the cues that we would have automatically picked up in our late teens and early 20s when we were interacting with somebody. With rare exception, we could usually tell if we were going to like somebody within the first three minutes. I don't know how you worked with your relationship situations, but when I was interacting with people, I was always an extrovert. So I always was outgoing, but that meant that some people, you know, you could tell that they were pushed back a little bit which told me that they were maybe in the middle or they were introverts. They didn't need someone to come on to them that strongly. But when you're dealing with kids nowadays, it's A, 90% of the time, it's very blunt, direct, very open. They're not as cautious as to what they say. And they don't look and they don't try to read nonverbals. This gets them into trouble. And I can't even quantify how many times I've been approached by somebody is, do you do relationship coaching? And my answer is, I'm a life coach and a parent coach. I'm a mediator. I deal with conflict, but being a mediator is what pushed me into being a coach. Why should I be wagging the dog with the tail? I want to get in front of it and I want to help prevent conflict because that's more powerful for people. And that led me to coaching and relationship coaching is just one special form of coaching. You have to teach people that the number one thing they have to do is learn to read nonverbals, understand when someone is not being 100% honest with you, because I think that's what causes a lot of relationships in today's world to fall apart is people are anchoring on a visual that they want to try to paint and they don't want you to see outside the edges of that portrait. And I like to call the nonverbals Picasso filling in the corners of the picture. Uh. He was a master. See, he would paint something, but then he would look at it and go, something is missing. And of course, we all know Picasso. I mean, he made some pretty weird looking paintings to a non-art lover. But he never failed to fill in all the corners. He always looked for a way to finish off the masterpiece. And that's what I like to say is that's relationship control. He didn't want to leave anything left out that someone could interpret differently than what he wanted to portray. Microcosm that, and that's what relationships are nowadays. Uh, young man or young woman, they, they paint a picture and they hide their faults and they don't want their faults to be out there. But you need your faults so that people can learn to accept you with them. I've been married 47 years. I guarantee you, my wife and I have gone through ups and downs, ins and outs, but here we are 47 years later and we're perfectly happy and we have our great days. We have our good days. We have an occasional bad day, but you know what? We're committed to being honest and transparent, which is what's missing in today's relationship. People think, well, hey, I need to be an influencer. I need them to think a certain way. So I'm not going to be 100% honest. And then six months, a year into a relationship, something triggers and they can't hide their microaggressions. And boom, now all of a sudden, wow, I never knew you were like that. And now the relationship starts to fall apart. 
So yes, coaching is extremely critical more today than it has ever been in the past because of the adoption of digital devices and the fact that people lean on them instead of just, you know, face-to-face communication. Right. And you mentioned microaggressions. Can you, for our audience, define what that is? A microaggression is a super, super quick microscopic facial expression that denotes your true feeling about any topic, any subject, any person, any group. And humans are extremely adept at burying their microaggressions. The microexpressions and the microaggressions work hand in hand. A microaggression may be just a comment that you would make, and then you'd realize, oh, you know, that was an insensitive comment. So you take your microexpressions and your microaggressions, and together they create an incredible amount of friction between people, especially people who are not within your in-group. Got it. I know when we were talking before the show, you mentioned choice dynamics, and that's in the title of our show. Can you describe what choice dynamics are? I've heard several of your podcasts, and you're very knowledgeable about Dr. William Glasser. He is an incredible man with his choice theory and his books. And when I first got involved in coaching, I wanted to go and I wanted to determine, you know, what is what is foundational to coaching? And so I read some of his work and then I said, you know what, there needs to be a pivot off of this. The pivot needs to be choice dynamics. People can understand theory and they can understand, yes, I can only control myself, but choice dynamics is how do you integrate choice theory into the dynamics of your day-to-day? How do you use choice to interact with people in your in-group? How do you use choice to interact with people in your out-group? How do you optimize your own behavior And so the dynamics of learning how to do that is choice dynamics, because choice is something that we certainly are not born with. it. We don't have the ability to make proper choices until we work through a few bad choices. But choice dynamics is the field of creating an environment where you can make choices, see what the consequences are, and make pivots, make other choices. It's almost like having a living decision tree walking around with you. You consider the consequences before you make the choice. And then as soon as you make the choice, you have to be fully aware of how the consequences start to play out. And when something doesn't go the way you think they should, you should dynamically pivot instead of waiting for it to just fall apart. Gotcha. And when you talk about consequences... I'm going to guess that you're talking about good as well as bad consequences, right? I I never use reward and I never use punishment. Everything is a consequence. We may feel that something is negative for us, but it could be very positive for somebody else. And depending on someone's worldview, uh, they may think that something is completely irrelevant, whereas we we anchor on it and we get angry about it. So consequences has to cover the entire spectrum of rewards and punishments and everything that falls in between. When I say consequence, how many times have you done something and realized it was really, really stupid and now you're punishing yourself? Either you're mentally whipping yourself or you're saying, you know, that was really bad. And so it's not about whether it hurts you or other people. It's just the entire spectrum of consequences. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Would adhering to choice dynamics lead us to a more civil social discourse, do you think? I believe that you have to convince people that it is in their control to dynamically choose what they do, and they have to completely set aside social policing, 
They have to set aside getting angry about some of the choices other people make, because if you can't control it, you shouldn't let it dictate your emotions, number one. Yes, if you have a bias or if something really, really bothers you or you feel like you need to speak up, you should pick the correct form to do it in. But for me, Choice Dynamics is a pro-social interaction with other people. Before I'm going to interact with you, I really will need to consider if I'm going to make this choice or do this thing, how are you going to react to it? And if we get more people to adhere to, I'm going to control myself at a level that will make me acceptable to the people around me, my environment, my sphere of influence, then that can't do anything except improve pro-social behavior across all members of society. It's very difficult to get some people to do that because they anchor either for or against their biases and they don't want to let them go. But if they're presented with the opportunity to have less conflict than more conflict, most people, I'd say in the neighborhood of 95 to 97%, will always pick less conflict because it's not in their best interest to pursue conflict. Right. I know conflict is something I don't particularly cherish, try to avoid it or minimize it or prevent it whenever possible. So I would fall into that 95% for sure. I know you do work with families, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the effects you've seen of COVID-19 on families this last year. I don't want to parrot what some of the uh, sociologists are saying, but it stands to reason that there is more abuse. There's more family friction when people don't have a outlet. They can't get outside of a very tight, close-knit environment. You're going to have an increase in conflict. We have to set aside the fact that there's more opportunity for abuse. There's more opportunity for arguments and with a conflict that has no place to go. I like to call it the stair step. Once one person starts to go up the stairs with a conflict and there's no other way to go, if the other person doesn't understand that the best thing to do is to walk away from the conflict and let it cool down, they both end up at the top of the stairs fighting like crazy. That's the number one thing that I've seen is that parents don't understand how they can set aside how much stress is bubbling up. The average parent gets to spend about 37 to 38 minutes a day with their teenage children. Just think about that number, 37 to 38 minutes of quality time with a teenager. That means that when they're not sleeping, they have 12, 13, 14, 15 hours that are not quality time with their parents. That's pre-COVID. Now let's just multiply that 38 minutes to five, six, eight hours. And you can see where there would be an incredible opportunity for increased conflict. It can go the other direction as well. And some very enterprising parents have found ways to entertain their kids or get their kids involved. They're very, very engaging. But by and large, most parents don't know how to fill all that time. For more than three or four decades, we've been a very, very wide open society. Both parents normally work. The kids are left at their own devices. You try to make that 38 minutes of quality time meaningful. And now when you expand it to four, five, six hours, guess what? It's really difficult. Just think how difficult it would be to fill the time up with even one or two children for six or seven hours. I was in the military and the Navy. Confined spaces creates conflict. That's the number one thing. The parents don't know what to do with all that extra time that's getting shoved onto them. How would you help them? What would you have them do using choice dynamics to improve that time together? Is there anything? 
the first thing I would do is I would explain to them that you can co-create the environment. The problem is the parents put on the control monster and they think, well, you know what? The kids are driving me crazy, so I'm going to tell them what they need to do. And the parents don't understand that choice doesn't work that way. The best way to get the children to buy into doing something that's going to be productive or less conflicting would be to give them a menu. It may be a reduced menu. You may only have so many choices depending on your socioeconomic status. However, you can always present them with several choices of things that they may choose to do, or you can accept what they automatically do. And you can put yourself a little bit on autopilot and say, hey, I know you're uh, you're involved right now doing this. Why don't you create me a page or something that I, I can work with? Just show me what you can do on Facebook. Put together a collage of some of the things you've done on Facebook. In other words, you, you show them that, A, you're interested in them, and B, you're willing to engage with them, but then you're willing to let them self-drive, allow them to let their co-creativity come to the forefront, and you allow their choice dynamics to get practiced by doing that. You say, here's the things that you might do right now. Which one do you think might suit you right now? And over time, I've had some creative parents. I've had one that one of his daughters is a teenager. She had never really gotten involved other than posting pictures on Facebook. And now all of a sudden, she's able to build websites. She's able to build all kinds of PowerPoints. She's able to do all these things. And it's because the parent, the father, put trust in her. And he allowed her to co-create and he didn't downgrade what she was presenting as a product. He always encouraged and said, wow, that is fantastic. Why don't we see if we can't add this type of an element and allowed her to explore, feed her curiosity. Again, that word curiosity keeps popping up in choice dynamics. If you want people to follow their choices and learn how to make positive choices, you also have to allow them to feed their curiosity and pick what they want to make choices about. Really interesting. And I love that because I know parents like to try to get their children interested in what they're interested in instead of the other way around and trying to take an interest into what their children are interested in. So I really like that approach. One of the things about parent coaching is very simple. Number one, parents like to be in control. And the number one thing you do as a coach is explain to them that they don't need to be in control to be an effective parent. What they have to be is they have to be aware and engaged and the best parent is an observer, pilgrim, participant, not a controller, someone who is demanding. There are times when you have to be demanding. Your boundaries are necessary. There's, I've never met a teen yet who, if you presented them with a boundary, they weren't going to try to find a way to get around that boundary. But if you allow them to co-create the boundary, set the parameters for the boundary themselves, and explain to them, this is what it's going to take for you to get beyond that boundary, or maybe we expand the boundary. All of a sudden now, instead of them fighting to get over the boundary, now you've given them a target, a way to expand the boundary themselves by allowing them to co-create their environment. So coaching is not about anything more, in most cases, than toning down the parent and encouraging the children to take chances. And then the final buy-in is to get the parents to accept that they're taking chances and they're going to make mistakes and not to chastise them for those mistakes, uh, encourage them to keep making mistakes because otherwise there's no way to learn. Exactly. So buddy, I think the last question I want to ask you since we're running out of time here is what approach would you take to reduce social and racial injustice through your coaching? 
what I try to do is I try to make sure that I engage any family that comes to me, uh, parents bring their problems they're having with their teenagers or whatever. I try to encourage them to take part in like a boost camp. We run boost camps now. They, they run on hiatus during COVID, but as soon as COVID is mitigated somewhat, we'll go back to doing the boost camp. So we try to have a very diverse population in a boost camp, anywhere from four to 12 to 15 families. We don't go below about eight or nine, but we'll go down to an eight-year-old if they're fairly mature. But then we have an interactive boost camp where the families interact with each other. We have some very simple activities and very simple non-challenging competitions, but we get them to see that people who are not like them Diversity is a commonality in this case. Wow, he has the exact same issue with his dad that I have with my dad. And yet he's from a totally different culture, has a totally different background, maybe has a different skin color. It doesn't matter. As soon as they interact in a situation where they choose to interact in a diverse population, all of a sudden you see an increase in pro-social behavior. And if you invite questions, both individual and in group settings, you're going to find out that the kids more than the parents are going to ask questions. And they're not shy about asking those questions in front of people from other cultures or other groups because they're like, you know, I don't understand why this happened. And here's the kicker. The parents pick up on that. The parents see that, wow, our kids are way more involved in this and they've bought into this way more than we have. Maybe this is a way for us to put aside our biases and our prejudices, and this allows us to build consciousness. Then we send these kids back to the schools, and all of a sudden, they're like, why are you treating him like that? He's just like you. And all of a sudden, we've seen some schools in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where we do some work with our nonprofit, where the kids go out, and they're like, it's not acceptable to bully other kids. It's not acceptable to look down on other kids. Everyone's the same. Everyone's equal. We have to accept that we're all going to have minor differences, but we're all the same. And that's how I use my coaching to drive social and racial injustices into the foreground so they can talk about it. But then they set them aside because at the end of the day, people want to reduce conflict. So it seems like you have a magic trifecta there. You have choice dynamics, diversity, and family dynamics, and you incorporate all of them and blend them together in a way that's really helpful for families. My original goal was to make it easier for teachers to deal with diverse populations. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I was wagging the dog from the wrong end. I really needed to work with the parents and parents. They're like, well, I don't want to deal with that. I want the teachers to deal with that. And the teachers are like, can you get the parents more involved so that it just evolved out over time? But you are right. It's a three-legged stool. You have to have all three legs firmly on the ground. You have to have parents, you have to have teachers, you have to have students all speaking the same language. And we all know that's very difficult, but it's doable if you can get them to understand Dr. Glass's choice theory and how it evolves into choice dynamics. Great. So buddy, if there's people who are listening who want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? Well, I have a website. It's bctmediationsplus.com. And my contact information is on there, but they can always email me at bct at bctmediationsplus.com and you spell out plus or they can uh, contact me at buddypscapro at gmail.com that's one that I default to especially when people are getting a hold of me with their phone they tend to like that one a little easier because it's a little less letters to type in or whatever but 
Could you say that Gmail address again, please? Yes, it's buddy, P-S-C-A pro at gmail.com. And that stands for buddy positive social change agent pro. Nice. Thank you so much for being with us, buddy. I know you've added a lot of value to the listeners and I hope it's been as enjoyable for you as it has been for me. Thank you. You just finished listening to an episode on the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Instagram or Facebook. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking about the diversity stairway. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast. And remember to subscribe.